There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Well, if your interest is all about uh, rugby union f- uh, of any kind, then this episode is going to be all for you. A very controversial uh, undertaking or decision was made by the RFU in England this uh, last week, and we're going to get stuck into some of the details of that. But before we do that, um, as usual, we've got uh, Professor Ross Tucker here with us. And uh, Ross, I know you've got some caught my eyes. And big thank you to our Patreon supporters who are on uh, Patreon and uh, they get a chance to not only get uh, Ross's weekly newsletter, uh, which he sends out, but also some more detail around the podcasts that we're doing. And uh, our Patreon supporters have been very vocal in supplying us with many different caught my eyes. So we're going to try and catch up with some of those over the next couple of weeks. Today, we were planning a completely different podcast, which we've already recorded. That will go out next week. Um, because today we are focusing on something with a little bit more news value, as I've just suggested. But Ross, let's kick us off with that uh, caught my eye, which has got nothing to do with rugby football, but more to do with running. Yeah, and it's something that caught mine specifically. Like, as as you've just said, we've got two podcasts actually in the bank, yep. um, both of which have your caught my eye subject submitted via Patreon. Thanks for those. And there's actually a backlog forming, so I've got to get on that. But this weekend, I, I sat down and I was looking at Twitter and I saw an article from a, a friend of mine who's now in Spain used to be out here in South Africa. He did his postdoc work here, and we studied Kenyan run- runners together. You met him, Jordan Santos. He's a very good runner himself, isn't he? He's a good runner himself. <laughs> Remember that um, you were an announcer the day he won, a, he won a local 5K, and then we all ended up playing table tennis back at my place It was a 5K that involved visiting various pubs along the route, <laughs> and it was nothing to do with speed, but he was he was the fastest. <laughs> By a lot. By a lot. He was a very good runner, yeah. elite runner, actually. Yeah. Anyway, he's now, he's now in, the, in Spain, and he published a paper just last week, actually, um, and it's called. What, if, what is his job? I mean, is he a sports scientist? Yeah, he's a sports scientist, right. and he's working okay. up there now. So this right. this was a paper called "Effects of Nike Zoom X Vaporfly Next Percent Shoe on Long Interval Training Performance, Kinematics, Neuromuscular Parameters, Running Power, and Fatigue." So that's a it's a wordy title, but basically they studied one of these carbon fiber shoes in an interval training session. Right. So I say, okay, I'm going to use friend privileges here and message him and say to him, instead of me sitting on this podcast and spending two or three minutes explaining what he did. I'm going to say to him, in your words, tell us what the study involved, what it found, and what it means. And so this might actually become a thing. Maybe maybe from this point forward, <laughs> when we see an interesting paper, I'm going to email the researcher and say, listen, if you would like to send me a two-minute voice note explaining why you did it, what you did, what you found, what it means, then go for it and we'll play it into the podcast. Right. So this Here is the is. first of such an occasion, and this is Jordan Santos talking about a study that they've just had published. Hi everyone. Well, my name is Jordan Santos, and first of all, I would like to thank my friend Ross Tucker for giving me the opportunity to briefly explain what we did and what we found in this study. 
If you guys are running aficionados, it's obvious that the running world, especially in road races, has changed quite a lot in the last five years or so. Since that famous sub-two-hour attempt in Monza, where the first Vaporfly prototypes were released, nothing has been the same. That those shoes were helpful is something that nobody can deny, and since then new models have been released, and one of those new models is the Nike Zoom X Vaporfly Next% 2. We wanted to know how good they were and how much can they help an athlete when compared to traditional running shoes. And in order to answer those questions, we tested 12 well-trained men. These runners completed two long interval training sessions consisting of five intervals of one kilometer with 90 seconds of recovery seven days apart using either the Vaporfly shoes or the traditional running shoes. During those training sessions, we measured biomechanical parameters, running power values, leg stiffness, heart rate, the CMG height, and we even measured the running-related pain 24 hours after the training session to assess the recovery. What we found is that the Vaporfly running suit actually really helped. We found a 2.4% improvement in the interval performance. Biomechanically, with the Vaporfly suit, the runners displayed longer strides and longer contact times and a higher leg stiffness as well. The Vaporfly suit also implied higher vertical power when compared to the traditional suit and maybe the most interesting finding for most runners. The perceived muscle pain was lower when using the Vaporfly running suit. So the conclusion is quite clear. These shoes might not be cheap, but they are worth the investment and really help the athletes to improve their performance and their recovery, which means that also allow for higher training volumes. So unfortunately, I think that there is no comeback to the pre-Vaporfly times and these shoes with high longitudinal bending stiffness are here to stay. Well, thank you very much, Jordan, and a great, a great Spanish accent there. <laughs> but I think what's interesting about those two things is that I, one thing that I would love to have done is to look at the other super shoes and actually compare the Vaporfly compared to the Adidas Zeros that they're out there and all these and the and the um, uh, what's the other one the, the Hoka carbon shoes, all those sort of things, and and just compare which one is actually the best at that sort of distance. Because we know now that those shoes obviously do give you an advantage. Mm. But I would love to see how these different shoes compare because we're not seeing independent studies like that. We're seeing brands doing those studies Mm. and giving us some indication of improvement, but not independent researchers saying the Vaporfly is better than the Adizero, better than the the, the Hoka. But even even brands that do them don't often publish them, something we've discussed before. and I've, I've seen fewer of them. It might be I've missed them, but I've seen fewer of them in recent years because I think initially the incentive for Nike especially to publish was so large because they'd made a breakthrough. Yeah. Then you'd have thought the incentive for some of the other shoes to publish to show that they were at least comparable was mm. there. But now I don't think the incentive exists any longer because like, secrecy seems to be more valued than disclosure. I don't, I don't know what's going on in that space, like how these companies are making these decisions because Nike's not publishing its own stuff either anymore. No. You know, the, Jordan named the shoe. It's like got a long name with a number at the end. Yeah, it's, it's another it's version fly, two, you know, it's yeah. A, yeah. And now what are we on, like the fourth, fifth iteration of the shoe? Yeah. You know, they haven't been publishing new studies on their shoe either. It's, mm. it's falling to independent. So maybe what would be handy is for some independent researcher to actually say, okay, since 2017, how many studies on these shoes have there been? Mm. What proportion of those are Nike, independent 
studies mm. on Nike compared to other shoes and try and pull that out of the literature. Because mm. you're right, no one study is answering that question. And that's probably the main one. That's, I, I, I think it's know. absolutely amazing that nobody has done that because it's the number one question. All the brands are competing to be the fastest shoe and nobody's actually doing the test to see which is the mm. fastest and shoe. And where you see it is like, I think, I think there was an article in Outside Mag where a coach was working with these athletes and they mm. said, okay, we're going to test in this athlete mm. five different shoes. And Did then it's a, yeah, and I remember yeah. reading it. Was, it was more like a magazine piece, mm. a case study of one. But I don't, yeah, I agree. It's like, not research. You need, you need yeah. a case study <laughs> multiplied up 16 fold and mm. have 16 athletes do five different trials and, mm. and start to make that comparison. Mm. Well, it's interesting at the end of there, it talks about the fact that post, uh, post run uh, stiffness it was significantly lower, which I thought was quite surprising because I thought if you're running faster, mm. maybe there would be more post run stiffness. The only thing, the only question I have, and this is one of the the interest, interesting stories around this super shoe is does it potentially create more injury problems if you're using the shoe a lot so you see a lot of elite athletes will train in one shoe and then use that shoe for racing purposes because training it actually can cause more damage although I've, i haven't seen much research into that either to be honest yeah i remember in 20 it was either late 2017 or 18 there was a conference at which a study was presented showing that when runners do long runs in this shoe that matter that would have been first iteration of mm. the vaporfly their muscle soreness immediately after and the next day was lower. Yeah. And that suggests that if if you train by muscle soreness, you could either do more or you'd be less sore from your long runs that you could probably do better quality on your harder days. Yeah. Either was going to be beneficial. And so that wasn't a lab study where we're measuring your oxygen consumptions four percent lower and we can make prediction. That's a that's a training benefit that when summed over the course of say three or four months would potentially add to the performance enhancement. Mm. And I think what this study by Jordan is showing is that the same thing is true of the interval work. Mm. So now you're getting upside on the high quality work. You've got less downside in the form of muscle soreness. So you're getting all the benefit without the risk. Yeah. So for me, it seems like now the thing is, right, how am I best going to use this tool? How do I manage? Because the shoe is now a tool. It's, it's yeah. A, yeah. And, and how do I incorporate that tool? Do I do all the sessions? Because maybe there is an injury risk. I don't know. That, yeah. That'll take a six-month long study. Mm. And who knows? Maybe, maybe they're working on it next. We'll see. And I wonder how many uh, athletes run in those shoes all the time. Mm. I know some people have bought those shoes and that's what they run in. Um, and I haven't seen anything that suggests that there's more injury risk, but there hasn't been enough research into it yet. Mm, I remember being in Monaco at the IOC medical conference and Yanis Pizzolata spoke to me. Mm. He was the guy doing a lot of the early research. on. He must be Greek. In the, yes, South <laughs> with South African connections. Yeah. Um, and he said to me that the, he was working with Ethiopian and Kenyans. And he said to me, "Was he biomechanist or no? He's a physio, he's a sports scientist physio, and physiologist okay. yeah. who's done a lot of that work." And he said that they were finding that within two or three months, the shoe lost all of its elasticity. Yeah. And I don't know whether that was the foam or the foam plate interface or the plate, but he basically said that after a couple of months, it was like running with a frying pan on your feet. Okay, and well, that's so, interesting, isn't it? And yes, and so so there would be a study there on like what is the lifespan. The performance lifespan and then mm. if there's a performance implication like that there must be an injury one as well mm. so there's a lot about these things that is not known but what is known more now is that they're definitely helping and it's that's where that shoes costs i mean i saw it ad the other day it's like four and a half thousand rand now yeah which so that's is comfortably in the high to three hundred dollars three hundred dollars yeah 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you're a school kid in a shoe. pathway and it makes that much difference over time and acutely, the shoe now becomes a filter. What's interesting is that nobody has done anything, as far as I've seen again, where they have restricted the use of those shoes at things like schoolboy level. Hmm. Um, because uh, if some kid has those shoes, there is going to be performance advantage. And not all kids are going to, moms and dads are not going to pay that sort of money. So there is a economic reason why they should keep the shoes, not those super shoes. But how do you police that, I guess? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah not at school level. It's tricky, isn't it? No. Yeah. Like the US college system would be interesting. Mm. I know my brother who lives in Australia, a very good runner himself. Um, he's a sort of 32K, uh, sorry, 33-minute 10K kind of guy. And he's he's got two – he's got a son who's eight years old running sub-20-minute 5K, very good runner, running in the Nike Vaporflies. Um, and, yes, he absolutely b- b- believes that the shoe makes a big difference. But he's got an advantage, theoretically, against his other kids right. that are probably not running in those shoes. Yeah. yeah. So now a scout has to say, yes. how fast were you? What shoe are you in? I mean, it's difficult enough trying to mm. assess differences in biological maturation and training it's history healthy. and yeah. training age versus chronological age. Mm. And so on. now you've got the shoe. So anyway, oh, no, I, like I, love, I love Jordan to do that study. I mean, uh, we, we're going to throw some um, challenge at him and to say, well, could, could you do that same study with various different shoes from different brands and see whether you can come up with some sort of conclusion mm. as to which shoe is the fastest? Uh, Maybe he'll get I'd, back to me when he hears yes. this and he'll say... Of course yes. we are. Of Jordan, course. I, know, I know he's listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so let's get on to the subject at hand uh, for our podcast today. And uh, just on a week ago, the England's Rugby Football Union announced that they were changing the tackle laws. And that tackle law change means that anything to do with amateur rugby, in other words, from elite level down, um, tacklers have to tackle waist and below. Mm. Um, Ross, I mean, can you, is that the simplest explanation of it? Yes, and that's the, the problem is that's the only explanation yes. at this stage for many people. So it's the waist and below, not below the waist. As I understand it, they're saying yeah. belly button slash waist. And, and right. to, to, to sort of not swing the guillotine like has it happened over the week and there have mm. been some seriously yeah. hot takes in response. Big time. What, what they'll have to do now, and I don't know, I wasn't privy to the discussions, but it was first announced in December between Christmas and New Year that this was imminent. Mm. There was an outcry then. It was subsequently confirmed last week and has been even more intense And now it be implemented in July, July the That's 1st. the intention, they mm. say, July, which would, I guess, be midway between their seasons. So it's a, between the end of the current season and the start of the next one. Mm. They, they'll have to produce a bunch of material. I mean, they've got to specifically commit to what that wording of the law is. Mm. And is a tackle at the belly button, which is in theory above the waist, is that legal? Mm. Um, how much room for error are they going to allow? Uh, are they going to do anything around the ball carrier, because mm. in France, we'll get onto this, I suppose, in the French trial or change, they've changed something pertaining to the ball carrier as well, so that the ball carrier is not allowed to lead head first and bend really low. They talk about giving the tackler access to the pelvis right. for the tackle to be made by law. So there's a whole bunch of stuff. Plus, remember, once you've written the law, you have to now produce all the accompanying materials. Uh, there are some cautionary tales in the last two years of how if you don't nail that communication and get people to understand exactly what you're doing, you end up creating a new set of problems. Mm. So making the decision to change the tackle height is step one, Mm. but there are a handful of steps beyond that and presumably they're now busy discussing what those need to look like and then introducing them. So we we might be criticizing a future 
<laughs> prospect here, not current. Yes. Well, let's just give some context to the conversation for those of you that haven't listened to past podcasts that we've done on this. So the reason why there is this talk around the tackle law is obviously, and you've done a lot of research, just to to, to put it out there, Ross, mm. obviously you're involved in world rugby and you've been involved in a lot of the research that goes into this. There has been concern about head injuries to players when the players mm. are tackling high. And as a result of that, there's been a push towards lowering the tackle. Um mm. Is, is that a fair summary of where things are heading in terms of not only amateur rugby, but also the professional game? Yeah, fair enough. I think the lowering the tackle has been put forward as the solution to the problem. So what's the problem? The problem is head injuries. Mm. Uh, and it's head injuries acutely causing concussions. And it's subclinical or, or non-concussive head injuries. In other words, the 10 impacts you'd have a match, none of which reach the clinical threshold to actually cause symptoms and concussions, mm. but which might have some long-term detrimental effect. We, we call those, some people say sub-concussive, others mm. would say non-concussive. No one really knows how they accumulate, why some people are at risk. But what we all know, and hopefully anyone listening to this, irrespective of your position on the latest changes, would know is that there are lawsuits. And in fact, on the very same day that the RFU announced its its change to the tackle height, uh, a lawsuit of 55 amateur players was brought against them, World Rugby, and, and other unions. So this is a problem in the amateur game, clearly. Mm. We know that there's an even bigger lawsuit in the professional game, talking about rugby being responsible for causing these head injuries, not treating them, not diagnosing them. So that's the context against which this happens. Now, in order to in order to try and solve the problem, once you've identified the problem, concussion rate is too high, and it is high. Like we must be very clear. Yes, other sports might not measure them at the same uh, in the same methods and the same scrutiny as rugby does, but the rugby has the highest concussion rates of any contact sport. I, I mean, and the question is, is: is it a concussion epidemic? I mean, is it, is that well, a fair description of it? I suppose that's philosophical in the sense that for some people, the rates would be acceptable and they would ask, and this has happened over the weekend, they would insist that people sign a waiver, take the risk on themselves and get on with it. Yes, like <laughs> so, you do with any sport that has risk. Yes. Right. Um, others would say, but hang on a moment, we don't know what the magnitude of that risk is. Like players players walk onto a rugby field knowing there's a risk of injury. Yes. And, they, and every player will suffer injuries. They know that and they accept that risk and they enjoy the sport regardless because they love the contact and the physicality of the sport. But the counterpoint to that is that they don't necessarily know the magnitude of that risk. And they, and that's important because if you're going to weigh up risk versus reward, you can't weigh up two vague concepts. You have to be able to say, am I guaranteed to get this, this, this severe outcome? What's the likelihood? What's the what would happen to me if I did get it? And I would say that even 20 years ago, pe people didn't know that they would get these long-term neurological problems from playing rugby. But legally, is there enough safely. of an incidence to suggest that 20 years ago, players that were playing 20 years ago are suffering the consequences of that now? I mean, do we have enough evidence to suggest that that is a real problem? Well, we don't have, it's a good question, and we don't have a precise measurement of what the prevalence is of these conditions in retired players. So if you listen to some organizations, mm. they will say exceptionally prevalent. They'll say more than half of rugby players, but that's that's a claim not backed by any evidence. Mm -hmm. The counter is equally true. There's no evidence to say that it's incredibly rare. So if you took 100 players who played elite club or international rugby between let's say 1990 and 1999, that decade, mm. no one knows what proportion of those hundreds have got these problems. 
Yeah. And then, of course, it becomes a debate about how do you attribute that problem to, concu- to concussions versus non-concussive head impacts versus other behaviors that might have caused these issues. So that's where it gets quite vague and difficult. But it, it's, it's, uh, what's unknown there is the magnitude and this precision around it. Mm-hmm. What's not disputed is that there is a problem. The question is how big is the problem? Because right. understanding how big the problem is is quite important because if it's a small problem and you fix it with a big change, then you've over overdone it, right? Well, and the, without, a, without, without sounding trite and, and, and avoid the pun here, but how do you tackle <laughs> the, the, a problem that might not be a problem? Well, it's a problem. The question is how big a problem. Yes. Okay, so there's no, there's no zero issue. Or everyone issue. Yes, it's somewhere in between that. So there's a, there's no black and white. This this, mm. this whole thing exists in some kind of grey space, which is why then people's philosophical leanings about whether you should accept risk or not, when should you accept risk or not, how much should you change. And so what I what I've tried to make the point of in an article I wrote for patrons and and made it eventually public, is that it's not a question of what whether something should be done. It's how much should be done. It's a it's a calibration question. It's a volume question. Mm-hmm. It's not an on off. It's not about switching the lights on or off. It's about how far do you want to adjust the dimmer? <laughs> right. Do we want to keep the lights on almost as bright as they are or do we want to dial them right the way down? Yeah. And the rejection of the RFUs change is that people are saying that's too much. You've changed so much now by bringing the height all the way from the shoulders down to the waist. Because it was sternum. Well, it's shoulders. They, okay, they yeah. trialed or sternum. They, yeah. New Zealand, for instance, have said sternum. In November last year, they agreed to go to sternum. And the French have gone waste. Mm. So, And it will, this will happen more and more. Mark my words. The different unions now in their community games will lower the height in coming weeks and months. But where, how far will they lower the height? That's really the question. So as I say, it's about, it's about where do you calibrate the response? And that's very difficult to do. Like how do you, and I think you've gotten to the heart of it is if you don't know the true magnitude of the problem, then how do you calibrate the risk reduction response to that problem? Because, mm. and, and this is where, again, the people who've been <laughs> climbing into the RFU mainly, but like even me on Twitter over the weekend saying like this, you're trying to solve something that doesn't need to be solved. Just let it be. Mm. And administrators are killing the game. They don't, they don't see it from the perspective of the other side who's saying like rugby should be banned <laughs> or yeah. tackling should be totally banned in kids under 15 or whatever the case is. Mm. So <laughs> I wish that those two extremes could meet so that they could maybe appreciate one another's extreme positions mm. in order to understand why some people who are, who are actually trying to find a compromise mm. are in the middle of, you know, that, that's, a, that's a problem. So if the, if the RFU are, are taking criticism right now, it's for the, the manner in which they've done it, the lack of consultation they've been accused of, and for the size of the change. Mm. But, the, but the action to try and reduce risk and lower the height, that's commendable because it, mm. is, it is necessary. The sport can't continue to go unchecked in the direction it's going where it's got the highest concussion rates of any contact sport and there is this possibility that it's causing in some players some x percent we don't know the value it's causing these long-term harms as a result of playing it in the normal way mm. so i mean that 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 stat alone and when you're saying it's the instances of concussion in contact sports is highest mm. in rugby union yeah. 
that that's enough to potentially justify a change. Well, they have to do something, right. yeah. 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 So there and is, again, ev- and that is evidence led. Yeah, and you could mm. you could take a stance in defence of rugby and saying we we have the highest rate because we try the hardest to measure it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other sports would maybe say, hang on a moment, we also do our bit, and that's true. League, NFL, they do they do quite a bit now to measure their own concussion rates. Right. But I think a lot of a lot of rugby's spotlight has actually been on concussion how do we detect it we miss some no doubt but the stats now have been fairly solid for the last five or six years that more or less between two and three matches and four and five so it's between let's call it let's call it four and five games you'll see a concussion in a rugby match at the elite level right and that's high that's i mean that's (laughs) that means that half a players a season will probably risk a concussion. I suppose so, but I guess you, what are you comparing it to? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose. High is relative depending um, on what you're comparing it to. I mean, it's not high if you look at boxing probably or might not face be. slapping as we discussed in our last podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> listeners will only hear that one in the future. So yes, you've got that's to, right. You've got to put that one in the to parking lot. That. There's true. some sports that are designed to cause concussion. Yes. The whole objective is a concussion. Yes. Rugby concussion is incidental mm. to play, but it's mm. the problem is to what degree is it unavoidable? And that's the issue. It's like there's no mm. way to tackle someone with zero risk of concussion. Yeah, 100%. There's going to be a risk. The question is how much risk are we willing to accept? And there's no answer. Like everyone listening to this is going to have their own answer. Some will say no brain injury is acceptable, mm. but zero risk is not possible. So, no. okay, so you, you might be right in theory, but in reality, it's not happening. So, mm. okay, for you, we want to get the risk as low as possible. But the sport can only ever be asked to make reasonable changes to lower that risk, yeah. not to make the sport non-contact. People say, yeah. like on Twitter, oh, it's might as well make a touch. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. yes, <laughs> you'd, you'd get the concussion risk right down if you did that, 100%, yeah. but you're changing the sport too much. Oh, yeah. Now some people are saying hi. Oh, because we're going to get into that a little bit because there is some interesting mm. arguments around that. But right. just, just before we get into those details, where does World – I mean, can you tell us where World Rugby sits on this? Because obviously they would have to make a decision as a World Rugby mm. organization to, to sort of give guidelines in that respect. So on the community game specifically. Yeah. Because remember oh, World Based Rugby, on what RFU have said yeah. now, are they in support of it? Are they looking at it? Can you – even tell us that at this stage yeah so world rugby is in support of unions that want to look at lowering the heights of the tackle and community game and and in fact in the elite game if a if an elite competition said we want to go to the sternum and we want to trial that world rugby would agree they have in the past they did it for the championship and they've done it they've agreed to the french lowering of the height they agreed to new zealand and i've no doubt that they'll agree like so the Mm -hmm. conversation has happened and it's been going for six years we recognized six years ago based on the data that lowering the height would be a way to reduce the risk. We get into maybe that exact study and how those studies, not just one of them now, how they found that and, and the, the dialogue that's happened for literally the last six years. But the, the, and, and they might well be in the next few weeks. Um, World Rugby's got its first quarterly meeting at the end of Feb, and it might well be out of that comes a formal guidance document. Mm-hmm. But up to this point, World Rugby hasn't had a policy because World Rugby doesn't have community rugby. Each union is responsible for its own community game with the guidance which has been provided. So I I suspect that it will happen more around the world and it'll happen with World Rugby's approval and blessing and potentially even guidance to say, if you do this, do that to support it. You know, it might be that it's quite useful to say, if you're going to lower the height, we suggest the following. Mm. And we also would, would recommend very strongly that you do the research that looks at the following things so that we can get a global picture. Yeah. And I mean, again, now speaking more personally, 
when the French said we want to go waste, we thought, okay, we thought you'd do sternum, you wait, go waste, cool. Let's see what it looks like. When New Zealand say sternum and RFU say waste, to me that's opportunity because, as I say, we don't know. Nobody knows where to calibrate the response. Mm. And it's only by looking at what happens when you calibrate it to X or, or level Y that you might be able to make these decisions. Mm. Which is most effective for your primary objective, lowering concussion, and which has the fewest undesired second order consequences because you're going to change the game maybe you'll want to ask about some of that now in a yeah. moment you're going to change the game at either height but especially waste the french said cool we'd like those changes we're actually quite excited <laughs> about changing the game mm. in that way they said it's a positive thing other people are saying it's very negative because there's confusion around what some elements of the game look like with that trial so and again nobody knows this but mm. they can measure it if the trials are done in a good, robust, systematic way. Yeah. Mm. Before we get into the changes in the game, I'm obviously looking at a bit of reaction to this over the weekend. <laughs> and Ollie Hoskins, who's the Australian forward based in London, he, he was one of many who came out and said, well, that's all good for the person being uh, being tackled, but the person that is the tackler, there is the consideration that they could be, there's more concussion there. And he was saying that on his Twitter following, um, you mentioned, and I'll just get the, he said, I was part of the trial of similar laws during the Championship Cup season for a few years ago. We literally had exponentially more concussions because of it. Tackle choice is situational and forcing low tackles in all cases is even more dangerous. So what he's suggesting is the tackler now having mm. to go in low is going to more likely get kicked in the face, kneed in the face, all those type yeah. of things, whereas before that is not not necessarily the case, the higher the tackle. Right. What's, what's your response to okay, that? So there's, there's a few things that he raises there, some of them very well and good, some of mm. it frustratingly incorrect. And he's not the only one, though. There has been a few people know, who have suggested the same if thing. I, no. I said in my post, if I had a Bitcoin, I was going to say a dollar, but the dollar's not worth enough. I said if I had a Bitcoin for everyone who's told me that tackling low is more dangerous, I'd be typing this from a villa in Tuscany, not a coffee shop in Cape Town. <laughs> because honestly, for six years, and I have to rein my frustration a little bit, because I know like I'm immersed in it and I've done like this. We've, we've looked at the data, not, not just me, but a bunch of people working in the space. And we know where the risk is higher and we know where the risk is lower. But you don't Yet know if the risk's lower because the law hasn't allowed you to necessarily measure people well, who take somebody low. Because if they implement this risk down the line, well, then you will see whether that is going to be the case. We don't know that yet, do we? Well, that's the intervention you look at side that trial. of it. But you, that's the intervention side of it. And where, where that's a good point is if you force it low all the time, and this is the point Ali Huskins made that is yes. good. If you force it low all the time, then you might create situations that you have higher risk in a new situation that doesn't currently exist. Correct. Most obvious example of this, and I'll use this by way of getting to that championship study, right. which has been like the bane of our lives for four years now. Um, the most obvious example is when you watch rugby, between 30 and 50 times a game, you'll see a player pick the ball up at a ruck or, or, or from a mall potentially, whatever it is, in a low position and then run low into contact. So the ball carries low to the ground, often leading with their head into the tackle. The most common tackle that's made against that player is that the tackler is upright and he's, he kind of soaks him into his midriff. Mm -hmm. So the head of the ball carrier strikes the torso of the tackler. The tackler's head is well removed from any danger and the ball carrier's head is striking what is a softer part of the, ball, of the tackler's body. That situation is actually quite safe and you wouldn't actually want to change it. Mm -hmm. The problem with the championship trial, among a few different issues, 
is that in the communication of the law change to the sternum, the perception among the coaches and the players became that that tackle would now become illegal also. It wasn't clarified that actually that tackle has never been sanctioned, penalized, even though it's high. By definition, it's a high tackle. Do you agree? Yeah. It's the ball carrier's head is being struck first by the tackler. But no referee ever has said that's a penalty for a high tackle because they understand that the ball carrier has initiated the head contact and the tackler's done what is quite safe. If the tackler tries to go underneath the ball carrier and then tackles up and hits him with his shoulder on the head, yeah. that becomes an unsafe tackle. With you. And yeah. so the, the problem in that championship trial that was created was that we took away, not we, the, the, the circumstance took away a safe tackle and replaced it with quite a more dangerous one because the perception was created among all those coaches and players that that's how they now had to tackle. Always get underneath the player's sternum and you don't have to necessarily do that. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Does that make sense? Like, I, and I was, I was, I was in the room when they pitched this study trial so to I'm the coaches and the, and the conditioning staff, and it was honestly, it it felt like a hostage negotiation. Mm. They didn't want it, and in the process of trying to explain it and justify and rationalize how it would work, the perception was created that you always had to go underneath the ball carrier's sternum, and when that win was played out on the field. Every single low ball carrier was met by a lower tackler, and you ended up getting head-head in low positions, Correct. where before you used to get head-head in high positions. So in the end, it made no difference. It, it backfired badly because it wasn't implemented well. You're going to have to explain this better to me because how is that different from now the RFU's decision? How, how, well, where's the difference? I don't know about the RFU's decision, but what the French did, mm. so let, let's talk about what they did in 2018. We flew to Paris for an emergency meeting with the French rugby authorities and the Minister of Sport came. And they were this close, I'm holding my fingers really close together, they were this close to banning rugby because they'd had four tackle-related deaths that year oh. in young boys. And so this was an emergency. The French said, please will you come? We're meeting the Minister of Sport. We went there, myself, uh, head of technical with World Rugby at that stage, which still is, different title, translator, and we sat there for the whole morning in this, in this conference room in a hotel, thrashing out like what the risks were and how they might be mitigated. And we presented all the data to the French showing that high tackles, high contact was most dangerous and that the risk goes down at the torso and then back up at, below the waist. Mm -hmm. And they said, we want to go waist. We said, are you sure? Because of the sternum and to the waist is actually quite safe. We know from all the studies and we talk, and I'll, maybe I'll get into these studies in a moment. Just let me park that now. We know from thousands of head injuries and tens of thousands of tackles that the torso is the safest place for the tackler's head to be near, mm -hmm. right? So we said to the French, if you go waist and below, you're actually taking away the safest space. Mm. It's safer than head, but it could be safer if you went torso. In other words, you're saying below the torso could be more risky. Yeah. So, which is in, what so, okay, so the, data, the data comes from now. The first study was done 2015 to 17. That was an analysis I did with some colleagues at World Rugby and a guy at the RFU at the time. Mm. 
And what we do is we say, okay, where is the head contact to cause the highest concussion risk? And it's where is the, now, just think about it this way. The, the, the ball carrier can only suffer a concussion if he takes forceful direct head contact. There's a small risk of a whiplash and there's a small risk that as I hit the ground after a tackle, my head hits the ground and I get a concussion. We've quantified that. We know that it's in the single percentage range. Whiplash plus ground equals about seven, eight percent. Mm-hmm. So 90 plus percent of all ball carrier head injuries are direct forceful contact to the head. So if you want to protect the ball carrier, you want the tackler to be as far away from the head of the, t- of the ball carrier as you possibly can. That makes sense. It's obvious. Uh, yes. Now, what about the tackler? The tackler is a little bit more difficult to protect because the tackler's head is always in the game. Mm. You, you can't make a tackle without your head being somewhere close to the ball carrier's body. Because you're leaving with the head essentially, aren't you? Yeah, it's, it's attached to your shoulder mm. and it's, it's five centimeters difference between shoulder versus head making contact. So, mm. so now the question is not how do we eliminate tackler head involvement? It's what do we do with the tackler's head to make it the safest? In other words, where do I want the tackler's head to be for the concussion risk to be the lowest? Right. Yeah. And the answer is, is gained from now studying. You take 6,000 tackles that didn't cause a head injury and you take 600 tackles that did and you ask how they differ. Where per thousand at this height versus that height. Per thousand tackles where the tackler's head is near your shoulder, your torso, your hip, your knee and your mm. lower leg. What's the risk of a head injury? Right. And okay. the, picture, the picture comes out in the first study we did. There's a green zone. No, hang on, let me go from the top down. There's a red zone of highest danger when there's a head-shoulder interaction. So in other words, I'm tackling you and your head and my head share airspace or my head and your head, shoulder share airspace. So yes. when, we, when we share airspace above the sternum, red zone, right. very high risk. Yes. Like literally one in 90 tackles, if memory serves me from that first study, was going to cause a head injury. Then you get a green zone from the sternum down to the hips. That's where the, that's where the head is ending up. That's where the proximity of the tackler's head to the ball carrier's body. So in other words, the shoulders are lower than that. In the, ta- the tackler's shoulders, correct. The tackler's shoulders. Yes, exactly. Yes. So your target point is somewhere between the sternum and the hips. For the head. Then, then your head is, well, you're, yeah, but you're not targeting with your head. You're targeting right. with your shoulder and your head will then be in that proximity. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Green zone. Then when you go hips and down, you get an orange zone. So it's mm. kind of like Goldilocks now. Not too high, <laughs> not too low, just in the middle. Like right. so many things, but a balance, right? Mm. So that was that was the picture. We then, because because then what happened was a lot of coaches and people in the sport said, no, 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 just, no, no. Just to stop you there. So I just want to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. If your head is obviously higher than your than your shoulders, in theory, if you're going in at waist, does your head not end up at the torso? At the torso. So in other words, yes. what you're suggesting then is that that green zone is where the head, in other words, if yeah, you're... It's where the head is. That's yes, key. That's the, very important. Yeah, the key is where the head is rather than where the tackle is made around the arms. And that's extremely important. And it might inform to some degree why the French went waste. We're going to get... That's yes. part of the story I'm telling Which you. Which means the head ends up in the torso. And why the right. RFU are going waste. Right. Because you okay. want the head to be in the safe place. Correct. Now, it, it's not often that you'll make a tackle in a vertical position that low down. Right. So most often... If you go tackle with your back parallel, your head mm. and your shoulders at the same height, yeah. which means if your shoulder's hitting the hip, your head's going to be at the level of the right. hip, not the torso. Right. 
But oftentimes, your shoulder will be a little bit below your head, and then your head is safe, okay. your shoulder is on hip, right? And that might be part of the calculus that the RFU used. Mm. It certainly was part mm. of the French argument, is we want to put the heads in the safest place. The problem is if you go sternum, like New Zealand, and like has been discussed, then if, if I'm targeting your sternum as a tackler, my head is going to be shoulder and head. You, you, you follow? Yes. And that's you can't make a you can't make a sternum tackle with your back back horizontal because yes. you, you'd have to be three foot off the air or right. two foot off the, off the ground, right? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so the point was red, green, orange. Okay, that makes sense. So, so, we, so we, why we get why we on that subject is right. So you've got this zone of safest head proximity, and if you could then choose all tackles to be with a ball carrier in that place, that's what you would do. Mm. The problem in the RFU championship trial. Is that they? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. created this perception the coaches walked away from that meeting with this idea that every single situation had to be below the sternum and all of a sudden you got as many head-to-heads as you did before it just happened that they were low down instead of upright makes sense in other words the head was at the waist rather than well the head was at the head because what right. was happening was the ball carrier was going low into contact and the tackler was going low into contact okay with you. and then i'll give yeah. you another example and yeah. this is where I'm, i want to be critical and, and then that, that happens because when somebody comes to tackle a ball carrier tend what the ball carrier will tend to do is then is lower his body and sort of charge into that person yeah, yeah. right okay. it happens for that reason and Which it also see, happens because yeah. the ball carrier often wants to go low and pick and go from a rack yeah. or a try line situation when you're two meters from the try line and you're trying to dive over the line you're low you, you yes. want to be as low as possible there yeah. and, and and that becomes of, we'll talk a bit about that because that becomes problematic yeah. with this new law and instead of instead of allowing the tackle to happen just as it had done for 20 30 50 years where a low ball carrier is tackled legally even mm. though there's head contact by an upright tackler they managed to get rid of that safe situation and replace it with a more mm. dangerous one because it wasn't implemented well. It mm. wasn't, yeah. The communication wasn't clean enough and it wasn't implemented well. Now, the, the French solution to that problem was to pass a law for the tackler to tackle below the waist or at and below the waist and the ball carrier to not be allowed to drop or duck into contact. Right. So they solved the problem by putting equal responsibility on the tackler as they did the ball carrier or vice versa. It's yeah. quite complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, and that was this, that was their solution to that problem. They'd learned from the experiences of the RFU Championship and mm. somewhat creatively they said, well, in that case, we'll just stop the tackler, uh, stop the ball carrier from doing what makes it dangerous. And I mean, I remember well, when, when is, we... When is one bend more than another bend? I mean, well, there's always a natural... becomes a subjective... Bend of the body, then it becomes subjective, doesn't becomes it? It becomes a subjective It becomes complicated. Yeah. But they said that that risk was worth taking because, remember, for them, that not doing yeah. anything ran the risk of banning youth rugby in the mm. country. Mm. So they kind of, like, had to do something. But we said, like, you know, consider the fact that the safest zone is from the sternum to the, to the waist. Mm. And maybe you want to allow the tackle on the sternum. And they said, we don't think that the sternum represents a large enough change to change behavior. 
It's because, you know, the sternum versus the shoulders is five mm. or six centimeters, yeah. and the margin for error is then still small enough that you can get. And this mm. is what's happened, is you can still see. Players players currently are targeting more or less where the sternum is. But then the head is going to probably hit the head and anyway. Then, and then no. you get the head on head, right, the head on yeah. shoulders, and the yeah. concussion. So, yeah. that's, so the French wanted to do more. They wanted to say, let's do more. But then to solve the new problem that that would create, they also introduced something around the ball carrier not being able to... to and is that the case down. now in French rugby? Yeah, so that was from, I think, level six down. So... Mm. The, their elite game is level six changed. top amateur yeah it's high amateur I wouldn't say top top because mm-hmm. they've got level one and two are they professional and then level three would be semi-pro very good players four and five and I think it was from level six the name wow. of which I forget now and that was implemented instantly by instruction there were probably grumblings but they had to just get on with it and what impressed well, me because the, in- the incentive was banning the sport well that was the, the risk see, this, this is what makes it interesting is that the critics of this RFU rule is mm. that nobody from a ministerial level is coming in and saying we're going to ban the sport unless you make it safer they were they were doing they, that because they had to they the are, question though. is the question that they're everybody's asking now is first of all how did the RFU get to this conclusion which as you mm. suggested we're still wait, waiting to hear on that mm. is it going to be evidence based is it going to be based on pressure from some lobby group or a government group we, we don't we well, don't we know. think it's evidence-based because like we, we did the first study showing where the height of the contact is the safest right. for the tackle and the ball carry in 2016 i remember now and I was they will have earlier, that research obviously yeah yeah that research mm. has been shared ad nauseum with mm. them it's been mm. published i've mm. there are five or six papers now in scientific journals mm. this the initial study was published in three different forms there were three papers came out it was then repeated in the Under-20 World Cup twice. Mm. It was done in the, under, in the 2019 Rugby World Cup. It's been done in Rugby League Elite Men. It's been done in Rugby League Elite Women. It's been done in Elite Women since then in Rugby Union. It's been done in the Community Game in Rugby League. And it's been done twice more in Elite Men. And the reason it's had to be done so often is because there's still resistance to the fact that lower is safer. Like there are there are top level coaches and many players like you've just read that tackling lower is more dangerous. How do you know? Well, because I got concussed from a hip contact when I yes. played. You know, that's the kind of thing. Well, even Ben said. Stokes saying that his yeah. dad was a player yeah. and he was claiming Bing Stokes, of course, the English right. cricketer, saying his dad's rugby career ended because of a tackle mm. where he was the tackler and he got he got his neck broken. Yeah. Yeah, and so. Yeah. The 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 and the mistake that's being made, and I'm going to call it that because it's a, it's an error of understanding how risk works. Is people are looking and counting how many times they see an event. Mm. So the coaches are saying, I watch a lot of rugby and I see most head impacts, most head injuries and concussions happen from a head near the hip or the waist of a ball carrier, and that's true. Mm. I forget exactly what the figure is, but across those eight or nine studies, there are more by number more head injuries from hip contacts than there are shoulder and head contacts. Yeah. But that doesn't make them more dangerous. It's a it's a artifact or a consequence of the fact that there are simply so many more tackles at that point. Mm. So 52% of all tackles are in the range between the bottom of the ribs and the upper leg, in other words, hip, hip mm. area, 52%. So more than half of tackles go there, mm. but only about a quarter of head injuries happen there. Yes. About a quarter of head injuries happen at the torso mm. and about a quarter of head injuries happen at the head. But the head head is so rare in all tackles that when it makes up a quarter of injuries, it's overly risky. Does right. that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so the only way you, you truly understand risk is not by counting how many bad things happen. You have to count how many 
things could have happened mm. and then express the bad as a percentage of the total. That's, mm. And that's propensity. So what we, were, what we then did was we said, okay, if you have a thousand tackles, head, shoulder, head, like in other words, heads sharing airspace, yep. the risk per thousand tackles is X. Mm. How is that different from a risk of a tackler's head near the hips or the waist of a ball carrier? Well, it turns out it's quite a lot higher. It's about mm. sixfold higher. Mm. So if you are trying to change behaviors, you have to substitute one thing for another. What you'd rather have is fewer of the high risk and more of the low risk. For sure. And that mm. means you want to see more head hip and less head head. Because if you could take all the high risk and turn them into low risk, the number will come down. It makes yes. sense. Yes. And, and I've used this before. You will see, if, you, if your job was to count road accident fatalities, you will see far more people die in car accidents than motorbikes. Mm. You would not conclude that motor cars are more dangerous than mm. motorbikes. There's just more motor cars. Because there's so many more motor cars. So yeah. there might be twice as many car deaths, but there are 10 times more cars mm. than bikes. Yeah. So, so proper understanding of risk, and this has been a struggle. <laughs> this is where I get frustrated: is you cannot only count; you have to assess risk and then say, okay, the safest place for the head to be is below the sternum. They're all told, we because what happened then was we we presented this, and the coaches said, right, give us a summary here. You know, look, tell us the mm. simple. And the summary was that if you draw a line at the sternum. And you divide all tackles as head above the line and head below the line. Not contact, not shoulder. Head. Right? Head. Head position. Mm. In other words, if, sh- if heads are in space above the line at the sternum compared to below, the risk of a head injury is four and a half times higher. Yes, that would make total sense. And the risk of a head injury to the tackler is three times higher mm. if it's high contact. And that's where the drive to lower tackle height came from. In 2016 already, the discussion was... How do we get the tackler to be slightly lower or a lot lower? <laughs> yeah, and it, it it it's gone through different stages. It's in the elite game. It's been sanctions, red cards to try and drive them down. I don't think that's worked. Um, I don't think the sanction is strong enough, mm. and I don't think that the message has been well enough received. And I think it's been it's been rationalised away as accidental rugby incident. Can't really change that. So, like, we're not going to intervene. Mm. It's been a battle to get that message through. And now what's happening instead is this, they're saying, well, in that case, we're going to lower the height. Mm. That's what's going to happen. And I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry for being repeating this, but everything you say makes sense, except for the fact that we, in a year's time, because of the change, we don't do you can't really say, for instance, that if they make this change to the law, that no. things will be better. It could be, yeah, in a yeah. year's time, and we, where this change of law might cause more concussions to the tackler. Yes, it could so we be. don't know that exactly. It is an experiment of be. some and if, sort, and if that happens, then we would have to like look hard and say, well, why did it? Why did it happen? Because we know now from and and when you count up. All the times, the first study, the repetitions, mm. the studies in league, the studies in women, studies in the community game. We're looking at like eighteen to 20,000 tackles have been coded and mm. a 1,000 plus head injuries have been identified. Mm. So we've got a pretty good understanding mm. of where the risk is in the current context the current of the context, way the sport correct. is played. But when okay? that context changes. And if then you, you change that context, yeah. you've got to be really alert. And this is, this is important, is you've got to be alert and understand what else is changing as a consequence? Like, a, mm. And I've given you the example in the championship trial. We changed the context and the behavior changed mm. in such a way as to actually negate any potential risk reduction yes. because we, we, we saw a new phenomenon or a new circumstance arise that didn't used to happen. 
low ball carrier and a tackler now. It became a race to the ground because the because the mindset like it was needless, I think. Mm. But there was this it was almost like this intellectual panic. Mm. We can't go high, therefore we must go low. And you got overcompensation. The same would happen now if you said the ball carrier can't drop, but the tackler says, Well, I gotta go low, 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 you're gonna get a lot of knees. Mm. And the knee's quite dangerous. Correct. It's yeah. not as dangerous as the head, Correct. but it's pretty damn dangerous. So you'd yeah. rather not have a head near a knee. No. So the, 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 the titration or the calibration needs to be done just right. Mm. And the communication is very important. Mm. And, then you, and then the third thing that has to happen is you have to be very clear about helping people make the adaptation and giving them time to do it. Mm. You know, we, while the RFU were doing that championship trial that ended up not going well, we, we did the similar thing in Stellenbosch. And sure enough, for the first three months of lowering the height to the sternum, there were more penalties and no no reduction in concussion. It looked only bad. Mm. What, why would you have more penalties if it's not safer? We mm. we could accept more penalties as the price if it reduced the risk. But then sure enough, after the third month into four, five, and six, the mm. concussion rates start to, start to come down because it takes a bit of time. Mm. And in that championship trial, they had eight weeks mid-season mm. to shift to a lower height and yeah. then go back to a higher height. Sure. It was never going to work. It was mm. never going to work. The French, it was the same, by the way. They introduced this waist-high tackle plus the ball carrier. And for the first six months, it was just penalties galore. Because yeah. now you had two Which sources of the penalties. <laughs> two sources of penalties. The tackler's getting penalized for being too high and the ball carrier's being penalized mm. for ducking too low. Mm. And, they, and, that, and we've sat now in two internal meetings, plus they've come to a medical conference and presented their data. And they say that in those first few months, there was a huge increase in penalties, equally among the ball carrier and the tackler. Mm. And there was no reduction in concussion risk. But then, surely enough, sure enough, the concussion rates start to come down. And so by the time they were in their second season of implementation, their concussion rate as identified by the referees was about 27% lower mm. than it had been before and still, they believe, heading down. Mm. So they were very encouraged by it. They mm. presented that data. They showed that the number of head impacts in a game is lower. The number of concussions, mm. as identified by the refs, is lower. Plus, and this is where they, this is where you see cultural differences, is they saw more offloads because now you're tackling below the hands, so the ball is free. They saw more line breaks and more tries. They think it's great. Well, I mean, so, you, you've, you've, it's, it's a good segue into the next part of this discussion is that safety's all, you know, we've discussed it now. There is a criticism that mm. you're in fact changing the game. So, for instance, yeah. you've just mentioned the offload. One of the key tactics in the game is to be able to prevent the offload. So if you're the tackler and you're trying to tackle somebody, you go in slightly higher, you prevent them from mm. offloading the ball. In other words, you have players that are designed to do that you also have the pick and go in the players on the ground next to the try line trying to pick up the ball but basically going in mm. low how does a tackler prevent somebody from doing that when they're already going to going low as first place and then the third That's, criticism is yeah, yeah. if you're a tall player trying to tackle a scrum off how do you get below the waist when you're six foot four in the scrum half yeah, five yeah. foot so, five mm-hmm. so those are all things that potentially change the game and the criticism is not only does it change the the type of player potentially down the road that will play rugby. Is it too complicated to encourage people to continue to play the game? And the criticism is, particularly in the UK, that it will turn a lot of youngsters off from the game. It's a lot to ask you in one go, but there there are legitimate fears that the game of rugby will change as a result. And that is where when we... So so like hopefully by now we've we've dealt with 
and not everyone will agree, but hopefully most of you will agree that this can't be this can't be an issue of leave it alone. Mm. Something has to change. The question is how much. It's a like we said before. It's the dimmer thing. It's not an on-off switch. So like you can't just leave it on or off. We've got to dim it or turn it up or down. But we just have to now figure out where. And this criticism and these discussions are about that calibration. Like how far do we go? Now the French went very far, and are quite positive. They they presented data from surveys of players and coaches, and they think it's gone really well. You know they got they got much more positive feedback than negative. In England, and when you say positive feedback, in other words. The fact that the players themselves the, are supporting the change yeah, because the, the game itself is The players and coaches better. support the game because they say we feel more safe and we enjoy the game the way that it's played with this law. Right. They think that it opens the game up and makes it more expressive. And maybe This is where, at the risk of capturing everyone with one statement, there's a difference in cultural approach to sport even yeah. as well. You know, And that's what I think is playing out somewhat in the, in mm. the discussions. But the French loved it because the ruck is so clean because now I'm tackling you around your, your hip, upper legs, mm-hmm. which means when you go down, your hands are free, you place the ball quicker, the arriving player gets it quicker. It's much quicker. It's much more dynamic and fluid and flowing. But it's not... It's not as attritional as mm. the rugby was before, and they like that. So they the French so, like that. Yeah, based on their style. surveys, they yes. like some elements of that. Mm. They like it. So it's they're like saying it's the opposite of South African rugby, which is a <laughs> push and barge. I can imagine what would happen here if they said this overnight unilaterally. It would be it would yeah. be the same as but in England. But going to be a discussion. They've got fifty thousand signatures on a petition now rejecting this change. Right. So there's a lot to be said there. Um, but yeah, the, the French players felt and the coaches felt that it was safer and they enjoyed the game changes. To them, it was a positive. The same things that have been criticized as likely outcomes were actually mm. deemed positive by them. So there you go. Perspective, position determines perspective. Because right? if you're a nation that is where, I mean, it's a blanket statement to suggest that South African rugby has always been about this, but South African Springbok rugby has been about the physicality of the game, mm. even at the very highest level. And that's always been a sort of a, a, a part of the game that we've always excelled mm. in. This potentially, if it becomes part of the professional game, might negate that physicality. And people yeah. will say that the physicality of rugby is a key component in terms of intimidating, in terms of getting psychologically a, a strength. When you're sitting in the scrums pushing a guy backwards, psychologically, if you tackle somebody hard and put them down, psychologically, that is part of the game. You're taking out the strength element of the game and turning it into a skills yeah, game. And, and I can see how, like, what some people understand by physicality would require contact at least to the upper body. Mm. There's another part of me that wants to point out that physicality is not synonymous with height. I mean, you can be incredibly physical smashing someone at the belly button and it would be a legal tackle. And in fact, on Twitter this weekend, there was like a tennis match of people saying, how about this one? And they'd show a a waist high tackle that's absolutely like textbook dominant. Guy goes Mm. backwards in contact. Someone would respond saying, yeah, but what about this one? And then show a guy getting bounced off and potentially injured at the waist. Mm. But then for every one of those, there's a a head high tackle. I mean, the Stormers fly off two weeks back, concussed by a head-to-head impact, red card to the tackler, clear as day. This Mm. yesterday, Jamie George was concussed by a head-to-head in an upright. So there's anyway, the point is like everyone's got exhibit A, B and C in their armory. (laughs) But the, but to answer your question is, I don't know that physicality is always directly linked to the height. I think the fr- the French game, in some respects, would be less physical as a result of waist high, but in other respects, it's not. But maybe that that physicality. If you watch rugby from nineteen seventy compared to now, I mean, it's different. Mm. It's just that it's changed very slowly and it's evolved 
Whereas this is a revolutionary potentially change. And then 1970, it was it was less physical than it is now. Am I, am I right in suggesting that? Yeah, because that? the conditioning of the players, the yeah, speed into contact, the structure of the game, the number of occasions that you get these big one-on-one hits was considerably lower back then. So mm. there's definitely evolution that we can't always predict. Now what's happening is we're imposing a, a, a Darwinian natural mm. selection level change on the sport and now trying to predict what that evolution will look like. Mm. And it might be that it becomes physical in other ways or becomes less physical but again Mm. my hat sitting here is player welfare and if this could cause a 30 to 40 percent drop in the concussions i would consider less physical potentially good unless it changes the game so much that now it becomes more like a basketball match you know with very little contact but i Mm. i don't know i just don't see that to me that's a sort of sky is falling prediction you have to protect against that to some extent yeah you don't want it to go Mm. too far Mm. but again how will you ever know this without doing it and studying mm. it? It's like it's like chicken egg, you know. The people people are saying we want to see the evidence that this is going to work for concussion and not change the game. Well, how? How are you going to get that evidence in the absence of making the change in the first place? You're asking the chicken to lay an egg before the chicken was born, yes. hatched. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So so that's why this is good because between the French, New Zealand, England, and imminently maybe. Scotland, Italy, Ireland, Wales, South Africa, Australia, who knows? These changes will happen in varying degrees and with mm. various methods of communication. And it will give us a better understanding so that we can start answering that question. And there'd be no shame, in my opinion, two, three years from now, not six months. That's the risk is that they'll give it six months and then pull out. Yeah. It's not long enough. You need to give this two seasons like the French. They were brave enough to commit. Mm. They said, no matter what happens, we're going to stick with this. And now they've started in there. Okay, it's actually their third season, but season two was <laughs> wiped out by COVID, the pandemic. Right. But in, So in their second actual season, they've seen changes. Now they're encouraged, they'll persist. But by, but by three, four years from now, maybe the game looks so different and people say, actually, this is not what we want. We can pull it back. Why mm. not? Go up to the bottom of the ribs. Why not go up to the sternum? It's, that that option still exists. It mm. doesn't have to be, you know. So it's an for, ongoing trial. death to us part. Yeah, I, I would say mm. so. And they're going to mm. call it a change. But I guarantee you, like in France, they've mm. got good researchers studying it. New Zealand will have community injury surveillance studying theirs. And the English will have the same. I know for a fact they've already started to pull together a team of epidemiologists and rugby specialists, injury surveillance experts to study exactly what happens with this. So so the, the option remains on the table to to move it back up. I mean, they might be pressured into moving it back up by the public response to it. I don't know. But, but if the evidence suggests that you get greater benefit from lying slightly higher tackles with fewer negative consequences, then it's obvious what you have to do. Because then you go back up to say, mm. all right, sternum or... In my, if I was king for a day and I had the perfect thing, I'd say it's a pity there's no landmark between the convenience of the hip and the sternum mm. or the armpits, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Because Maybe they wear different jerseys, think, which has got a, t- well, a hit zone. Th- there, is, there is something like that already. It's, really? it's a quadrant jersey and it's got different color blocks that then match up some left shoulder onto left side of the ball carrier, for instance, showing where the head needs to be and, and the height. So mm. a line for height and quadrants for sides. That, yeah. that already exists. It's a bit like, and it's it's been, a bit like boxing when you're not allowed to hit below the belt. There's yeah, a line. A land, <laughs> you, you create like a landmark for people. Mm. And the problem is I think like people have said, okay, armpit, that's obvious. Where's the next one? Belly button or, or mm. hip. Mm. And actually, because I can understand why some people are saying the sternum and the armpit's not low enough. Mm. 
Mm. It's an incremental change and we want change. You want to see it, want to see otherwise it's not enough to not have evidence. Yeah, yeah. and the French yeah. are saying that they're already targeting the top of the chest and the top yeah. of the ball. So sternum, mm. it's no difference. We're going to yeah. see the same thing. On the other hand, the waist now is unpalatable for a lot of people because it feels too far. Mm. And, and again, based on data, it does eliminate the green zone and it puts you from red into into orange maybe you're better off saying actually let's try and get as many as possible into green so yeah it, it would have it would have been handy if there was a halfway yeah. a logical immediate halfway point i've thought often that one way to implement it is that if the if the ball carrier is carrying the ball in a normal position the tackle must be on the bottom half of the ball or lower mm. that would seem to me to be a logical landmark mm. now problem is the ball carrier sometimes has the ball at his shoulder mm. But in the normal carrying position, if you hit the bottom half of the ball, that would be, in mm. my opinion, a quite a safe target to mm. have. So, yeah. Yeah. F- final thought for me on this, and I'm extrapolating this in a, on a sort of long-term scale. If there are some federations like French rugby football um, versus South Africa versus New Zealand, all of them with different laws at the yeah. amateur top amateur level, potentially down the road, and I've been talking five, ten years down the road, the style of game. Will be, will be radically different. So mm. I, I can imagine that mm. for world rugby, it is going to become critical for there to be a uniform decision about this sometime in the future because mm. you can't have a French so, rug, uh, fo- rugby football um, situation where they're, where they're pulling in lighter and faster and maybe not as tall players versus a South African system where it's all about physicality and then the game at an international level is about physicality because it means the French will never win. Yeah. And that's also going to be counterproductive to the well, sport. So the, the race is on to, okay. s- to so, some extent. So there's a few really, really interesting and important points there. One is that this is not necessarily even a future problem. It's a present issue because what they've done in England is that every level below elite which means all schoolboys, even schoolboys who are in pathways to potentially become elite are now tackling with a new law. Okay. Yeah. Martin Hawkins is a patron follower who's often very lively and engages on the posts on patron. And he replied saying he's got a boy who is currently playing and the way they've been teaching them to tackle is to tackle higher in order to wrap up the ball. You alluded to that yeah. earlier. Stop prevent, the ball from prevent moving, the, yeah. prevent the offload. They're now going to have to change that. But then at some point, if his pathway trajectory is good enough, he will enter into a new, well, not a new competition, but he'll cross over into that level of rugby where suddenly you are allowed to tackle high mm. and might be required to. And in women's rugby so, in the UK, there are players that play in an elite and a top amateur. Yes. I read about this so, the other day. So right. potentially there are two different laws that yeah, they yeah, exactly. have to keep in touch And with. so that's where, that's where the separation <laughs> between elite and community becomes quite important. Mm. Because the moment you make a hard line between them, you put that hard line through your talent pathways. Mm. And then you've got to be very careful about what you do. Do you make an exemption for people who are youth on your pathway? Because if you did that, at least you would alleviate the potential of having to teach something new once they reach a new level. But you'd be closing it off to people who don't have that exemption. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. So some, some nuance around that. And one of the things that are, I've read a couple of journalists' articles over the weekend that surprises them is that the English set their change at such a high level that almost everyone except the current elite is going to have to make this adaptation. In France, it was down to level six. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you could argue that maybe there should be a compromise where you say up to the age of 15, everyone, 
is below the waist. Then from 15 to 17, it goes to the sternum. And then from 18 and over, it goes to any height. But maybe in the future, mm. the elite game also has to bring it down to the armpits or the sternum. But that, that kind and of decision. It has decision, to be global, that decision, doesn't it? Well, that would depend on the whether the union feels that would depend on whether the union feels that they need that change because you could you could see how some unions and I dare say the French would see it as an opportunity by making everyone tackle lower. You, you're actually teaching maybe better tackle technique. Mm -hmm. I think it's easier to tackle adjust upwards than down, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time you're creating a faster game with more one-on-one -on -one tackle responsibilities on players and they might say actually you know we're not worried about this not might they have because i asked them we're not that worried about it because we think that we once our players enter our top five or six they'll very quickly be able to adjust to tackle the ball but they'll do it more safely because they've got more fundamentally sound tackle technique that's their current argument right. now it's too early to know if they're right. That mm. that could be an incorrect bet. <laughs> Might be actually it backfires mm. on them, and then they and that too could be will 10 have years to use. Before we find right, that out, could be yeah. one generation, two generations of players mm. before you find that out. Mm. But I suspect they'd be flexible enough to then say, okay, you know what, we we're going to go back to sternum for everyone older than 16. So we've got a two-year period of phasing them in before they get to the elite level. Mm. There are, by the way, some precedents for this in ice hockey in Canada. They've passed laws also to prevent concussions in kids that ban you from using your stick to check the player and from body checking. Mm. Now, that's something that is quite normal in adult ice hockey, but mm. it was made completely illegal. They too had an outcry saying, but now when these kids get older and they have to reintroduce that, their risk of injury is going to be even higher because they're not trained. They studied that and they found no problem. Right. So apparently you can quite easily <laughs> learn safe behavior once your technique is sound and then you can introduce cross-checking and it doesn't cause an increased risk mm. is the same true of rugby i don't know that mm. that's going to be for sure something interesting to look at because mm. yeah I, i've wondered the same thing school tours for instance now let's yeah. say every year some of those top public school boys from england will come out to south africa mm -hmm. now they're going to come out here and they're going to play our guys who've been playing for a year with different tackle height. Now that's mm. gonna create some some issues. Mm. So would those schoolboys have to be exempt? Uh, and this is the devil, this, this is the detail yeah. that is the devil for the English to now have to confront, mm. is how do they implement this and manage? And you've, you've raised others, the pick and go on the try line, like what do you do there? I know in France, they've been a little bit more lenient in that location of the field. As long as there's not a hit, mm. it's okay. And again, I would, I would suggest that you could write a law in such a way that makes very clear that a high tackle can be legal if it's not from the shoulder, arms, or head. In other words... In other words, not dangerous, essentially. Yeah. So in other words, you write it in such a way, and I'll try and phrase it, is if the tackler contacts the ball carrier with their head, shoulder, or arm, it must be below mm. the height of the waist, sternum, shoulder, whatever your law is <laughs> in your country. If, on the other hand, the tackler makes contact with the ball carrier's head at their torso, then no foul players occurred. Mm, mm. So then the referee's decision-making process would be, have I seen head contact, yes or no? If no, play on. If yes, was that head contact from the tackler's shoulder, arm, or, or, or uh, head? Mm. If yes, foul play, sanction, red, yellow, penalty. Mm. If no, torso, play on. It's like, that's not, that doesn't feel that complicated to me. No. Um, it, so I don't know the, the, the other thing I did want to say and I, it's only come back to me now is 
The French were facing a real imminent threat in that moment. Pressure was on them big time. Yes. The the situation in England isn't as focal or localized, but they are under major pressure because last year or two years ago, they had to appear in front of parliamentary committee to account for elite rugby. The same questions being asked in amateur rugby. I mentioned that on the same day they announced that change, they've had 55 players named in a lawsuit. That will only get bigger. That lawsuit will end up in the hundreds of players. Those lawsuits are a real and present danger, to borrow a cliche, to the sport. Because if those lawsuits are successful, or even if there's a settlement that in some way acknowledges that rugby contributes to this problem, the insurance costs and the liability of playing the sport will go sky high. Now, people can say, and I had a number of people over the weekend say, just make them sign waivers like they do in boxing. You can do that for boxing where two two boxers can sign a waiver before they fight. How do you scale that to 600,000 people? Mm. It's very difficult. And yeah. if, we, if, if you were to then put yourself in the situation, and I'm not saying that all of this is done for litigious avoidance reasons. There's a moral and ethical justification for mm. it as well. But imagine now it's 2045 and you're sitting in the court case and you're told, did you know that there might be a way to reduce the risk of these head acceleration and injuries to players? Yes mm. or no? I knew, yes. What would, that, what would that action have been? Well, we could have lowered the height of the tackle. Did you do it? No. Why? Well, because we were scared we changed the game too much. That's <laughs> that's not a situation anyone wants to be in. Now, but it's also slightly, you, you, it's also slightly, you know, that is, it does almost make sense. I mean, it, it's a fair defence. It's not. I mean, it's a, it's well, a for the traditionalists that might seem a fair defence. The you, only defence you could you make change the road, change the, the game. Defence you could make is we didn't want to change the game so much. Mm. So it's a question again yeah. of scale, not scale, concept. Yeah. And that's what I hope if people have stayed with me on this, like it's a lot of data and numbers, and that, but it's it's a question of saying like the rugby has been compelled, it has to do something. Mm. The question is how much. Now in the elite game, we get stick all the time, too many red cards, you've changed too much, you've affected the game. Yeah, but the behavior hasn't changed, so I'd mm. argue you haven't done enough. Because the same proportion of tacklers are still upright and still having head-to-head and head-to-shoulder contacts mm. as we had before. It used to be 25%. It's now 27% mm. of all tackles are in that high, high danger zone. So we haven't sure. budged them. Yeah. So we're getting this criticism. You've changed things, but, but it, hasn't, it hasn't worked. So we go, say, well, maybe now it's time to lower the height yeah. and, and compel people to, to actually change the behaviors. Mm. Mm. And that's what the RFU have done. Now, whether or not they pull it off and... Again, the devil will be in the details, mm. what they announce over the course of the next two months leading into that July <laughs> debut of the new tackle line. That's where it's going to get interesting. But um, yeah, if it even <laughs> happens, because the blowback has been intense. There's been a lot of opinion. <laughs> but the point, yeah. is that, the point is that there is major pressure on the sport. Mm. And mm. the people who are saying leave it as is are not aware of that side of it. Mm. I think the counterpoint is also true. There's, there's a group of people on the other side saying not enough is changing. And they don't necessarily appreciate how much resistance there is to change. And so somewhere in the middle of those two points is where we need to land upon. And I don't know where that is. Yeah. But everyone needs to be a little bit open to it. If the sport, if the sport has to change and be a little bit physical, a little bit less physical in order for it to continue without legal and financial like paralysis, mm-hmm. then that's what we all just have to deal with. Yeah. So. 
Ross Tucker, thank you very much. And a fascinating discussion, something that it seems like such a small rule change is creating such a controversy in the world of rugby football. But for those of you involved in the sport or have an opinion, don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, SportsSciPod, of course, our Patreon team, um, which is on patreon.com. You just look for us at Sports Science or Sport Podcast, and there's lots of discussion on there. If you're one of the Patreon members, as I said, you'll get a weekly newsletter from Ross around anything around this as well, and I'm sure you'll keep people up to date mm. with any late developments of this it's certainly a very interesting and controversial issue. Thanks for listening. We'll be chatting to you again next week on the Science of Sport podcast. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast. Sports.